Welcome to Hover Cars and Hard Problems, the podcast where we talk about difficult challenges in engineering and simulation. I'm Josh, and I'm here with Mary Kate. And I'm Kurt. All right, and today we've got a great few episodes coming up here. We have Prith Banerjee, who is the CTO at Ansys. Welcome, Prith. Thank you. Good morning. Excited to have you here. Talk about some cool things for sure. Uh, so, one of the things we ask everybody that comes on the show is the show is called Hover Cars and Hard Problems. And so, we wanted to ask you, what's your hover car moment? Like, what do you think of? When you hear the term hover cars, to me, just to lead lead the witness a little bit here, it's something like the Jetsons would have used, or the car in Back to the Future when it flies in the future. So it's it's something that thirty, forty years ago, everybody thought was going to be everywhere, and they'd be flying all over the place. But they're they're not yet in the in that definition of it. So what do you think of, or do you have a story when we talk about hover cars? My story is quantum computing. I mean, okay, we have been talking about quantum computing, the power of quantum computing for the last. 50 years, 20 years, ever since Professor Richard Feynman talked about it, but we are still struggling, still trying to define it. I know it's going to happen. It's just, we don't know when it will happen. <laughs> That's a pretty good one. That's very, very much in line with what a hover car would be. So do you think the quantum computers will be the, the brains behind the hover cars? Probably it's like whatever's under the hood of the hover car is probably going to be a quantum computer. So that Absolutely. So what basically classical computers use sort of two bits zeros and ones, and they do the computations, right? Uh, but there are problems uh, in computer science that take exponential time, two to the power n time, right? And so there's these hard problems, they're super hard and just takes incredible amount of time to solve. The quantum computers are, cons- are based on the concept of qubits, where each bit, instead of having zeros and ones, they can represent a whole bunch of bits, right? So if you take 10 qubits, you can solves at one given step, two to the power 10 problems. So quantum computers can actually solve what are called NP-complete problems. And this is like the ultimate sort of thing that everybody is looking at, right? And including we at ANSYS. And so that's a super, super exciting thing. But uh, people have been working on it. There are some early prototypes of quantum computers. But I mean, yes, your hovercraft, you name it. (laughs) So many hard problems in the world can be solved with quantum computing. Awesome. It's I look, interesting. I look forward to it. The first thing that comes to mind when I hear quantum computing is something called innovation, right? It's just amazing to how people are thinking about the the movement of what that will do to the industry as well as to the world. And so speaking of innovation, we were talking about this. We're like, what does innovation really mean? Like you go Google innovation and the first thing that comes out of that Oxford dictionary is the action or process of innovating. You're like, well, no, no, no. Like, okay, great. Well, really, what is it? And, you know, they talk again now as a new method, idea, or product. And it's, yes, it's, you can, it's easy to say yes to innovation, right? Because um, of the spectrum. But I feel, and I'd love to hear everybody here, like the first thing when I think about innovation is disruption. Like innovation is disrupting something or doing something different in my perspective, right? And I think, doing something like quantum computing, doing something like what some industries have been, some companies have been doing out there to make a change, right? Um, so what are your, MK, what are your thoughts? What, what does innovation mean to you? That's a good one. I think, of, when I think of innovation, I think lately of how we consume knowledge. So when I was a kid, my parents spent a ton of money on these physical encyclopedias. It was a big day in our house when they arrived. They took up a ton of space and that's how we wrote book reports. That's where we learned things. A few years later, they bought Encarta, probably Encarta 95 or something, and it was a CD-ROM, 
And then all of a sudden, those encyclopedias were obsolete. We never needed, they just collected dust. But now, when I do my homework with my kids, everything is right here, right on my phone, or there are school computers. And we don't need a CD-ROM, we don't need encyclopedias. We carry around $1,000 little mini supercomputers in our pockets that just have the answers to everything. So for me, I think the way we consume information has been so innovative, at least in my lifetime. Wow, flashback, right? Like I grew up with encyclopedias. Right. And right in the CD-ROM, you're taking now 20 books into now one disc, right? And so it's just amazing. So how about you, Josh? To me, innovation sort of implies, you, you, I did some homework, Kurt. You asked me to be ready for this question, so I, <laughs> yeah, I wrote it down. Fair. You got a head start. <laughs> I did, I did. So I, I think everything you said, uh, and I really relate to Encyclopedia Britannica because I had thousands, tons of those things. To me, everything you said, it, but in my head, innovation always implies something gets better than it was before. Like you, it's not just creation of something new, but it's improving it and and making a process or a thing better too. Like there's implied betterness coming yeah. along with it. I yeah. can tell you it's much better to Google something on my phone than it was to go upstairs and hope that nobody lost the L encyclopedia <laughs> when yeah. I had a book report due on yeah. Lions. Yeah. And I remember there was no photocopy machine. So I would cut out the image that I needed for the book report. From the, it, from the encyclopedia? From the encyclopedia. I was like, man, we're never going to use this page again. So here it is going into the report. But I, but this is a memory that right. we that, that era or our era grew up on, right? And our kids will never experience that. What they're going to experience is working with Siri or Alexa to tell them um, and explain to them, this is how it is, right? It's like, even when we think about marketing and how we consume knowledge, it's now we're seeing it through voice, right? Like visuals and videos are still mm-hmm. big out there, but you look at now voice, it's the way we're consuming everything, right? Audibles and so forth like that. So speaking of innovation, as we continue that Frith theme- might have something to say about innovation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. You mean the author of the innovation factory? <laughs> yes. But, and, and with that, I'm a huge fan of quotes, like, and I think that they're very inspiring. It gets you motivated. And, you know, I come back to like some of the thought leaders out there in the industry, like Simon Sinek, right? And he talks about innovation is seeing the light at the end of the tunnel and not walking away, even though we've fallen a few times, right? You get like an opinion of big fan of Peter Drucker, right? He says, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. I've heard Ajay say that, right? And I use that all the time, right? Culture is a key part. But he even says like, if you want something new, you have to stop doing something old. That's it's a form of innovation, right? And so one of, one of the people you interviewed in your book talked about, you asked him, and I'm gonna ask you, you know, define innovation and discovery. And I was like, discovery, why did you work discovery? Like, what does discovery have to do with innovation, right? And, and he said, discovery is turning money into science. Innovation is turning science into money. And it was a, a quote that like stuck, right? Because we always attach some type of what can we win off of and gain, uh, whether it's a tangible money for profit or um, for the better of the world, when it comes down to like innovation is turning science into money. And so, you know, hearing different people's opinions on innovation as you interview them throughout your book, and we're not going to give names to other people because we want people like, it's a fantastic book, like big fan of it. What's your definition of innovation? First of all, a great conversation. All of you define innovation exactly, I mean, perfectly. So the way I look at it is uh, innovation is doing something new. It's either a new product or a solution or a process. So today you are doing it one way. And if you do it a different way, that is innovation. Well, that doing a different way is actually discovery, right? 
And then if that new way actually solves a customer pain, right, and somebody sees the value of it and they're willing to pay for it, that is when it turns into innovation. So let me give you an example, right? So we, I'm sitting on a chair with four legs, right? And so a process of discovery would be, what if I came up with a chair with seven legs? That's something new. But does that really solve a problem, right? When you went from a chair with two legs to three legs, that provides stability. Four probably added more stability. Seven does no good, right? So seven-legged chair is discovery. You have discovered something, but nobody cares. Nobody will pay for it, right? And that is at the heart of, of innovation. Innovation is something new that you do that you either get a financial value or a societal impact. That is how I define innovation. So Monty Agler, the, the very famous professor of Penn State and formerly at GE Research, he's the one I interviewed in the first chapter of a book. And he, he and I were chit-chatting and he kind of came up with this concept, right? And it's a very simple quote. It says, discovery. Discovery is what people do in academia, right? They are, I mean, I used to be in academia for 20 years, right? And you're doing discovering stuff. You're doing quantum computing, this, that, et cetera. And just... Academia, professors, graduate students, they are always looking for something just new to solve, right? The world doesn't know how to do this, and they will solve a problem, right? And that is what, and how do you do that? In academia, you get research grants, right, from the National Science Foundation, DARPA, etc. So that's money into science, right? You are doing, putting money to invent new things, and that's the discovery part. But then if that is of no use to society, right? then it's of no use, right? So that science that was discovered at a university, if it becomes a product through a startup, that's converting science into money, and that's when it becomes innovation. So I thought that quote, I mean, we kind of chit-chatted about it, and he kind of finally came out, and I said, wow, Monty, that's a fantastic thing. But fundamentally, innovation is about doing something new that solves a customer problem, but somebody will see the financial value or societal value to, to actually pay for it. That is innovation. Awesome. Perfect. I want to take a step back here, and because I, I don't know that we said this, but Prith, congratulations on your new book that you have coming out. We had kind of <laughs> tiptoed around it, but we didn't specifically say. Prith Banerjee, uh, author of The New Innovation Factory, a book about this and in, oh, innovation in the business world, both large and small. And that's what we're going to be talking about here today and in uh, a few other episodes. So congratulations on the book. Was it hard, was it hard to write? It was hard to write. I mean, this is something, I mean, I thought, well, yeah, just do it, but... You've been doing I, it for I, 30 years. I, I have been in academia for about 20 years, so I have written lots of papers, uh, books, and so on, but many of those papers and so on have been co-authored with, with students and so on. This book uh, was written all by myself, and, and the timing was during the pandemic, we had a little extra time, and so I... I, I, I focused my energy every evening. It was tremendous discipline. Every evening I would sit for two hours and I'd keep nice. banging away. <laughs> so it was hard, but it was something that I really wanted to do. And actually the idea for the book came out of three, four podcasts that I did on the topic. And every time I talked about innovation, my interviewer said, Prith, you've got to write it down. And that's essentially what I've done. Awesome. You know, it's a, you reference... There's so many different books out there around innovation, but you really reference The Innovator's Dilemma by Clayton Christensen. And what made you think like this is the next phase or what, what got you inspired to be like, look, like fantastic novel, but there's more, right? And like, 
was there something that came to mind to say like this is this is the next phase of what we what you have experienced but then to maybe what the the population or what the world needs to understand what 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 made you kind of go down this path to, to focus on this great question so there's actually many many business leaders have written about innovation right and they two most successful books in this topic and uh, leaders that i really admire and look up to are one clayton christensen who wrote this fantastic book on innovators dilemma and what he basically said was these large companies right they i mean i i kind of i also mentioned the same thing right they do a good job in what is called the sustaining innovation right so you have a set of products and you're trying to do the next version of the product and they absolutely nail it and that is what i call horizon one innovation in the book but then then there are these sort of new disruptive opportunities where the large company oftentimes misses looking at it because it's it's going to be disruptive to their business and therefore they don't invest in it classic case is kodak right mm-hmm. i mean we all know the kodak story right and so they were doing fantastic in the analog world right and they actually knew about digital but they said oh my god if this digital thing comes is going to be disruptive and we all know what happened to kodak same thing with blockbuster right you went to blockbuster you rented a a a movie or whatever and then here came netflix where you could just do it online right and and it had to be shipped and then basically do it by streaming so the point is that the sustaining innovation where blockbuster was sustaining the way they were improving the way the customer service and so on companies do that fantastically right but it's always these disruptors like netflix and 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 say apple to to the motorola's of the world right in the smartphone area that comes and changes the things right so he kind of talks about the general concept of disruptive innovation and 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 uh, sustaining innovation jeffrey moore in his book on sort of zone to win he talks he gives a little more detail as to okay yeah you have to do these four different zones and and, and he goes in a lot of detail into it but again i have actually brought both these people uh into the organization that i have led i have read led hp labs had led abb and so on and so i actually invited these these leaders to speak to my people about about these things what was lacking was the theory was great but it lacked the practice i didn't know exactly what i'm supposed to do so in my book on innovation factory i kind of take that theory right that has been articulated by the problem articulated by clayton christensen and sort of this early solutions by jeffrey moore and i go all the way to say okay how does a large company successfully do horizon 3 innovation well i mean i'll just tell you i mean it's through partnership with startups and academia everybody say oh yeah we'll do open innovation in startups and academia the trick is the devil is in the details and that's kind of what i talk about in the book right all kinds of my my personal experiences when i ran hp labs when i ran when i was in academia when i was, did my startups and so on i put it all together it's literally my personal thoughts my guidance to all kinds of innovators around the world right there are some practical guidances that i've given and that is i think what makes the book interesting from my perspective if you had to give one of those practical guidances to our listeners and in the form of a tweet so very short about 140 characters or less what's the most important guidance you would provide what i would say is if you are trying to do a horizon 3 innovation you should realize that not all the smart ideas come from within you or your team you have to look around what's out there 
and try to partner with university startups and bring that innovation to your customers. Because it's not, don't think about the not invented here syndrome. That is one of the most important things. Most organizations get stuck with the fact, oh, I didn't invent it and therefore this is no good, right? Embrace the concept of open innovation and bring that new solution to your customers. Little more than 140 words, but I think that is the essence of my life. <laughs> that was perfect. That'd be great for LinkedIn. I like that one, right? Not Twitter, but LinkedIn. <laughs> now, Prith, can you give us a, sort of a high-level overview about what the book is talking about? Like what, you, you'd mentioned Horizon 1 and Horizon 3 a little bit, but can you give us an overview about what, you're, what the problem you're trying to solve with this book is for innovators? Absolutely. So I kind of define the problem, as I said, right? innovation is about doing something new that solves a customer pain or a problem, right? But horizon one, from a company's perspective, is the you're doing incremental improvements on the current set of products. And all companies do that fantastic, right? You have a set of products, you're a, a, like HP, right? You make, make, pro, make server, storage, printers, etc. They know exactly how to do the next version of the printer or server. Horizon two is the adjacencies where you have a product in a particular geography. When I was at ABB, we are making transformers for uh, the US running at 110 volts and we wanted to move to China at 220 volts. Adjacency, again, most companies know how to do. Where most companies struggle is the horizon three, the truly disruptive innovation. And examples are Apple, right? I mean, they were making laptops, MacBooks and so on and they disrupted the industry with the iPhone, right? People were using phones, cellular phones prior, right? On, but using sort of typing things and so on. But the whole concept of a user interface and so on transformed it. So that was a Horizon 3 disruption. Then they did a second disruption, right? Horizon 3, in terms of the whole sort of music and so on, right? The whole iOS apps, etc. So that was a second disruption that they did. Look at Amazon, they disrupted the book industry, right? The, the Barnes and Nobles and so on with their online books. Then they went and into cloud computing. So it's second Horizon 3. And we all have heard of Amazon and Apple doing this kind of thing. So the question is, how can large companies do this on a regular basis? That's what the book is all about. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, no. It, and speaking of books, right? You know, you... You read a lot, you've, you've referenced a lot of books, and I've tried to take the C-level challenge, which is read 52 books a year. One week, every week, read a new book, uh, and I failed at it so far. But I've progressed, and I've read more books this year than I did last year. So that's really the goal. But I'm always curious, and we were talking about this, like, what, what are C-level people reading? Like, what are people like, you've read so many, you've talked about so many, but what are you reading today where you're like, Kurt, like, this is a great book. Like, th this is kind of like what's drawn me to, you know, always continuing to grow and learn more. So what's on that shelf, that nightstand? So I am actually not your typical C-level executive that keeps reading business books. <laughs> I read books for entertainment. So I, I read a lot of mystery books and so on, which is, <laughs> which is not what you wanted to hear. <laughs> but I, I read so much technical stuff, right, as part of my job. I learn about quantum computing, this and that. So when I'm on my flights, I do something that completely unwinds me. Yeah. And that's Fair enough. Yeah. I do the same thing. I do the same thing. Nothing to do with, with my work or, or business and so on. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. I, you know, I, 
I tell people all the time, like I, after college, I was like, I'm done reading. Like yeah. I've studied and read a lot of engineering books and I, all I do was read, uh, all I did was read like Motor Trend and Road and Track, like stuff that would just unwind me. And I'm like, look, I got to get better, right? And like help myself and improve and learn. And you know, you start, you go through these phases, right? So great to hear you you stay grounded and, and do that. Well, well, thank you for being on the show. Uh, we appreciate it. I think we've all learned a lot about just the fundamentals and basics to innovation. Yeah, and if you're uh, if you're listening out there, pick up the book Innovation Factory. You can find it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, yes. and Barnes Noble. All right, thanks everybody. We'll see you again soon. Thank you.